Welcome to the Activating Consciousness podcast platform. This platform is an amalgamation of a number of platforms from HexoChange, including Activating Consciousness, the Right Here, Right Now live show, the Inside Out show, and also the repurposing of a number of blogs, vlogs, poems, and other forms of media that all combine together are here to offer you the opportunity to raise the level of consciousness in yourself, in those around you, and in society at large. We believe at HexoChange that we are on the cusp of an exponential shift in human consciousness, unleashing the potential that we have never imagined possible. We hope to go on that journey with you together, and feel free to subscribe at hexochangenow.com. One word for regular updates. See you around. Hi everyone, this is going to be one without Gary today. This is Samantha Supaya. I am the Southeast Asian Design Strategist for Sustainability and Regeneration, supporting Gary's Soul Uncovering podcast, Activating Consciousness. In this episode, I interviewed two amazing Canadian women who are doing the most important personal work, in my opinion, finding out how to think about and embody new ways of being human in their contexts while fully trapped by the fact that they have to continue participating in the system that surrounds us. That is, of course, all wrong. Marie-Pierre Bilodeau is the founder of Refarmers.org, an international organization that uses small-scale regenerative food growing to catalyze positive social and environmental change. I call her MP. B. Lorraine Smith is a textile artist, a writer, and an independent consultant. Her expertise is in regenerative business. She imagines a future where the economy serves a thriving society within a healthy biosphere. I call her Lorraine. This conversation takes us from the very personal to the very systemic, from the practical to the spiritual. You can also say this is about the personal condition, and you can too say this is about the condition of all of humanity. I hope you find some nuggets in this conversation that resonate with you. The idea of the podcast is to sort of explore all the different ways of being that there are, particularly with regards to how I guess you could call it personal growth, you could call it consciousness, you could call it like spirituality or anything like that. But how that sort of really changed the way that you view your life and, and your work. And I think both of you have that, and I certainly do as well, um, which is why we're here in this conversation. Um, so just to open up, like if you could briefly introduce yourself and give us an, an idea of your context and your life experience. Uh, and we'll start with MP. Okay, thanks, Sam. Um, my name is MP or Mavi Pierre, and I'm from the uh, Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, and Musqueam Nations, also uh, territory, also known as Vancouver, British Columbia. And uh, I'm the head refarmer at an organization called Refarmers, and we uh, do small-scale permaculture projects in East Africa and here in Vancouver as well. And um, yeah, I used to be a clothing and eco clothing designer and I didn't couldn't find fulfillment in, in doing that anymore I, I couldn't really figure out how to do it less wastefully even though it was eco clothing and uh, it was just there was no way in producing brand new clothing that I was able to feel comfortable with that and everything was going well and things were just I could have just done that and I just couldn't anymore but I started urban gardening in that time and I really saw what uh, social cohesion, urban farming or urban gardening brought to me in my life, you know, I have a traffic circle garden in the center of the street here, a roundabout in some cultures call it <laughs> a roundabout. And uh, so it really allows me, allowed me and allows me to meet lots of my neighbors. And I really realized that food growing is the glue that kind of holds communities together. And it always it has in many different cultures and throughout history and really feel like that might be the key to being able to affect real change in, yeah, in all kinds of communities. That's great. And yeah. Lorraine, yourself. 
Yeah, thanks, Sam. And that's so neat to hear, MP. And I, I actually just want to home in on the, the traffic circle roundabout thing, because I'm realizing as a little kid, I grew up where there was a roundabout that had a mulberry tree growing in it. And as the berries ripened every year, we would pick the berries. And it was a it was a great thing in the neighborhood. And that was in the middle of Toronto. So, but there's, I guess, I'll depart from your introduction, which I want to have Ron Moore and, and go to mine. Um, I'm coming to you from Montreal, Quebec, and I um, am a corporate advisor. I do most of my work as an independent advisor on environmental, social and governance or ESG data and transparency, mostly for large corporations. And that ends up looking like sustainability reporting or um, investor-oriented communications. And I mostly do that on behalf of an agency that sort of brings me in as one of the horses in their stable. I do some other more direct independent work. I'm doing some ESG coaching with a large forest products company uh, based in Brazil, uh, where I'm kind of helping them think about what is the point of any ESG reporting at all? How will it have any impact? And I'm doing that and I'll use that to segue into what I really think I need to be doing, which is I'm using that coaching opportunity to talk about ideas like engaging with non-human stakeholders. So what does it look like for a river to benefit from a corporate ESG report? Well, at the moment that's verging on an absurd question, but it kind of shouldn't be an absurd question. And so how can I contribute to um, helping along with billions of others uh, to reorient global industrial systems so that they heal people and ecosystems. Um, so that's what I do. Most of the time I spend not getting paid um, to sort of think and explore and have conversations like this, learning from others. Um, and I guess my background after being six years old and picking mulberry trees in the roundabout in Toronto where I grew up, um, I've had a pretty checkered past. So I'll just quickly pick up a couple things. Uh, I worked at World Wildlife Fund, the environmental NGO straight out of school, um, where I studied German and religious studies. So obviously highly relevant, actually proving highly relevant more and more every day. Um, and then I worked in electronic engineering in New Zealand, uh, which was a very interesting segue that obviously then segued me into uh, being a handmade paper maker. I was at my own little circular economy, taking business waste and turning it into handmade paper products. Um, which was a really clear stepping stone towards working for three years as a senior business analyst at Manulife Financial. And that was my last stepping stone before getting into um, sustainability in the early 2000s or, or what I now think of as regeneration. So really dabbled in and out of a lot of different sectors. Um, and all the while, speaking of eco fashion MP, um, I don't know if I would put fashion in what I've been doing, but I've definitely been playing with fabric as a spinner and a knitter uh, for almost my whole life, right around the mulberry picking time, I was already knitting and I've been creating um, yarns and dyeing and weaving and doing all kinds of stuff with fabric throughout that time, just as an artisan, which has informed that work. That's probably more than enough about me for now. Yeah, more than enough. <laughs> so then I think what this speaks to, especially with regards to, you know, we've talked about the urban context, especially um, where I think is probably where in a country like Canada, which is massive and, and huge and there is diversity, but obviously it's, it's within the context that it exists. And so the question then becomes, what is your experience of our civilization of separation? Noting that there is, there are very strong cultural forces, um, like traditional culture as well as modern culture that are sort of pulling us apart. And what made you realize that there was something deeply wrong with our dominant human civilization? Like which point was that for you and how did that hit? And again, we'll start with MP. Okay, um, I guess I, I pretty much was a traveler for my entire 20s and you know, for the past like 15 years, uh, you know, until now, but basically out of uh, high school, you know, I went into university not knowing what I was going to do at all. And I lasted two months. And because I realized I had a choice and that was when I kind of, you know, I was 19 and I was like, I'd been pressured socially and indoctrinated in so many ways. And I had never considered that I didn't have to go to university. Like, I mean, at least 
you know, take a year off or, you know, I, I don't know back then the gap year thing wasn't really happening, but how about not at all? And I realized I learned everything I needed to know through lived experience. And I really traveled my heart out and I became an emancipated woman, like lone traveler. That was another thing. It was like, how do I go to India and Pakistan by myself? And I traveled for years and years and years and didn't stop. And I had no purpose other than to discover like I went off the beaten track to Tibet, like hitchhiked into Tibet and did just the craziest things that I probably would never do now. But I learned so much culturally. And when I would come back to Canada, I felt really disconnected because I'd seen other cultures be more coherent, I guess, or just uh, community based. And I always felt like I didn't belong here. So I would just leave and go travel again. And I went all over the place. But then eventually I started a business, which just one thing led to another. And um, so and then I ended up in Indonesia and Bali uh, making clothing, which was way, way later. Um, and that's where our workshops were. And that's when I also realized what it's like to, for people to grow up with uh, intergenerationally and really it's so safe and like people, they don't have a culture of alcoholism <laughs> like there's no alcohol people just don't need to drink like they don't need to drink away their sorrows or their crazy culture it, it's just strange to come back to Canada where that's how people uh you know chill out it, it's just by drinking and that just is really abnormal to me and so um but I was uh, have a crazy past so that was also a problem of mine and but going there and seeing that you know other cultures like have nothing to do with that and so then but now being at home and with the pandemic and really localizing myself in my community this is the first time in my entire life even when I I had a store here I was still going to Bali every winter and I was just the traveling was a distraction from my lack of community and I always felt like it didn't belong here or there or anywhere but it, it, it felt great to travel so it was like but being here and really getting to know my neighbors and 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 making I don't know and and dealing with the, the stuff that <laughs> comes up and and all the privilege and and the poverty that exists right here in my neighborhood and and that I'm face to face with it on a daily basis and I'm not running away from it and trying to work here in my community has really I don't even remember the original question now but oh why yeah so I guess realizing in myself that that's where the the problem was. I was never brought up in a community, you know. I even though I come from an extended family in Quebec, and which also has a, a historically been intergenerational, that kind of stopped in my generation. And my mom and I, she was a single mom. We traveled a lot. I went to so many different schools, and and that like lack of belonging anywhere it really carried over. But now it really gave me. Uh, showed me how important community is and that, yeah, you have to cultivate it and it is possible to cultivate it if, even if you haven't uh, grown up with it. But anyway. Is it possible to cultivate it without people knowing that you're cultivating it? Yeah, I guess, <laughs> yeah, I think just the genuine, being genuinely like, it comes naturally to me to just want to know people's stories and get to know what like what made that person become that person even if the story is just like i not that adventurous or you know uh, like i i just am so interested in in knowing like how that person came to be here and what their story is and i think if we were all kind of interested in each other in that way that is what cultivates deeper relationships and even with strangers and that's yeah taking having time to do that in a culture where you're always fast going from one thing to the next you don't have time to sit and talk to your neighbor outside like we do that all the time in my building in the city it's really crazy the neighbors just congregate because we're some of us are just generally interested in it it attracts others into that like oh this is weird and yeah I think definitely people get sucked in without knowing that we're cultivating community <laughs> Yeah, I love that. And so the three things that pop up for me are curiosity, humility, and accessibility. And this speaks to, I guess, countering our civilization of separation, in a sense, by having those three things in place. Lorraine, your thoughts on that question? 
Yeah, uh, so I love the question and the reflections that you just offered in response to MP that, that strikes deeply. Um, I feel like I have a whole deck of cards and on each card I could play, like I noticed it here and then I noticed it here and, you know, full house, uh, royal flush of noticing disconnection. I'm going to pick on two moments in my life that are a couple decades apart that feel like they're kind of aggregating right now and what I'm seeing and doing. Um, one was in um, the early 90s, I worked as an industrial tree planter to pay for school. Um, so that's, it's a kind of Canadian thing, like lots of countries have plantation based forest products industries. Uh, certainly Brazil, huge, I now work in that industry, Indonesia, Finland, you know, the US, like there's plantation based forests all over. To my knowledge, this thing of like students strapping bags of trees to their hips and like slogging it out in the craziest conditions you can imagine. And it's like a little bit of a cult um, and doing that for the seasons between the frost and the high summer, which is when those seedlings need to go in the ground with the greatest likelihood of um, surviving. It's kind of a Canadian thing. And so if you bump into other tree planters, it's kind of like you, oh, you, yeah, okay. Um, so anyways, I tree planted and um, essentially you're standing in a clear cut. That, that's the reason you're planting trees. There aren't any. And then the industry needs there to be some in order to harvest them in a few decades time. And when I first went in, uh, I think I was 19, my first season of tree planting, maybe 20. Um, so I'd, I'd traveled, I'd you know, lived in Brazil, I'd lived in Germany. I was fairly awake kid. I was very interested in, um, I went to the Amazon when I lived in Brazil. You know, Sting was singing about the Amazon, Bruce Coburn in Canada was singing about the Amazon. So I was like awake to deforestation and let's say global issues. But it wasn't until I was in a clear cut planting trees for like 10 cents a piece that I realized here's Canada, this massive, you know, second largest country by land mass in the world, perceived by the outsiders and frankly by the insiders in Canada as a vast wilderness. And you can drive for hours and hours and hours in Northern Ontario, which is where we were planting and look to the left, uh, look to the left, look to the right and you see trees. But if you go a couple hundred yards in, it's clear cut. And, and so you think that there's forest everywhere. And then actually you realize, no, it's plantation and it's being harvested. And here it's clear cut and there it's grown up a little and there it's grown up a little bit more. It's basically a patchwork of plantation trees for industry. And so being in those clear cuts as a, and by the way, I spent a lot of time as a kid in the forests of Manitoulin Island, which I, I thought were just natural forests. And now I realized, no, they were once harvested too. Now they're a bit more natural because private landowners have let the trees grow back, but they're all secondary or tertiary forest. So there was this kind of like, oh, this is how it works. Forest, as we understand it, has already been cut and it's maybe natural, maybe not. There is very, very little old growth forest in Canada, period, the end. And I certainly hadn't seen any old growth at that point. Um, and clear cuts look like war zones. It is a horrible place to be. You are going to be baked by the sun if it's sunny. You are going to be drenched to the bone if it's raining. You will be eaten, kind of literally eaten alive by black flies when it's black fly season. It is ruthless. Um, so that disconnect of like what industry actually does so that we have toilet paper and lumber and printer paper and what people think Canada is was like, oh, okay. Mind you, it was really fun and we drank a lot to MP's point about our culture and I made a lot of money and I paid for school. Uh, so then the second episode of putting two and two together and realizing they really equal about like 14 trillion was um, in 2019, I think it was June, 2019, when the um, missing murdered, uh, missing indigenous, missing murdered indigenous women and girls report uh, came out in Canada. And um, that was to sort of investigate and pursue an understanding of the systemic racism and violence against indigenous women and girls. And the sort of aha for me was, you know, I grew up, um, aware that there were residential schools. I grew up, I had a very, I thought, and I still think enlightened uh, grade seven and eight primary school teacher who really taught us a lot about racism and prejudice and the need to understand that the land was stolen and that there were first peoples here, et cetera. 
Um, my mom's two best friends are Anishinaabe. And so I felt like I was like pretty tuned in. And then I realized like, I don't have a fucking clue. Like that missing and murdered indigenous women's report described the cultural genocide that took place in the last 30, uh, 30 to 50 years, like on my watch, the years I've been alive, I've been paying taxes <laughs> to the institution that carried out that racism. And so recognizing like, holy crap, it's so bad. And I, I thought I'm one of the helpful enlightened people. Um, and I think I work in industrial regeneration and I've committed my life to that. That was a really big wake up of disconnect that I thought, okay, if I can experience that as a, at the time I was 48, um, what else have I not yet woken up to? Like what outer rungs of awareness of reality are still waiting for me to step into them so that I can connect deeper in myself and then really contribute to what lies ahead. Yeah, those two come to mind. And what this speaks to for me is sort of how at the height of the slave trade, there were people in Europe who were aware of it, but they were very few. And the fact that it's still going on today in a different form, of course, and perpetuated by systems with a different excuse, um, I think speaks to exactly what you're speaking to right now, Lorraine, which is that we're all ignorant of what we're ignorant of. And unless we approach, right, with a learning mind and also clean eyes, I don't know how else to say it, but without propaganda, right, we're going to be missing it. And so this actually feeds really well into the next question, which is that we are on our own incomplete personal journeys. I think everyone has to go through this journey, but how far you get is something that is unknown. So point A for me is when we are conforming to and accepting of the dominant civilization today, all of this propaganda we're receiving, we're building into our core identity and we're then trying to live up to this, this thing that we're now conforming to. And then, so if that's point A where we are right now as a like modern human society and point Z is then becoming the humans that our land actually needs us to be, whatever that land might be. And it doesn't really matter where that land is for you particularly as an individual human, but it's whatever that land needs you to be, which is something that we might call ecosystem culture. Like if we're building a new culture to fit into that, what the land needs for us or what other people also call a new sort of indigenism. But where are you right now and how did you get there? What's funny, my instinct is to say, actually, even imagining that getting to Z is the project fits within the propagandized colonial worldview. And, and I, you know, I'm provoking a little because I know, Sam, you're not, um, you know, that you're using it as a tool to have the conversation. But I, I feel like even the alphabet is up for grabs right now. And so I imagine that there's a beyond alphabet universe that I don't even know how it functions. Um, is it numbers? Is it other kinds of equations? Is it, is it a script that I haven't been taught yet? Like the alphabet is just these 26 letters that I have, but, but noting that I don't know what I don't know and doing my best to sense into how far I may be able to go. I just turned 50. I, might live another 50 years. So let's imagine I'm halfway through my lifetime. Let's imagine I can accelerate some elements of the learning and integration um, and maybe decelerate in others uh, because they're bigger and harder. <laughs> uh, I, I'm gonna assign myself, I may be at about letter B right now. Like I'm in, I'm in a pretty early phase and um, I imagine because I don't have children of my own, so I don't have a biological legacy, a human biological legacy. I, I've planted, I planted tens of thousands of trees, uh, but they're probably all toilet paper in the sewer by now. Um, but anyway, because I don't have a biological legacy, I imagine it's my opportunity, my obligation, my duty to get as far as I can and then hand off where I get to, to my nieces and nephews, to my younger peers and colleagues to people who survived me. So yeah, I give myself a pretty 
early stage, I guess. I've been on this journey my whole life, but I didn't realize that I could do something about, uh, yeah, like I couldn't, I didn't really fit into like institutionalized learning. I had a hard time, even though I did well in school, it was really hard for me to learn like that. And like uh, retaining the information, it was just, I, I, I'm like a hands-on learner. So I always, I went to Catholic school. Like it was just, you know, my mom just did what she could and like the schools were close by. Like, I just didn't really get the type of education that was useful for my type of learning. So, and that's when, so I always like, just didn't I thought there was a problem with me like the, my whole life but why didn't I fit in why why was I so like not getting people like I just felt like everybody was on a different plane or something that and I was like and or that I wasn't empowered uh, like I always loved that I was different but I felt like I just can't fit in like and that was okay for me like because I like relished in that you know I was like oh I'm an artist awesome and uh, I think a lot of artists are kind of like um and there's this amazing quote that I also that I wanted to read a Krishna Murti quote which it, it, it is no measure of health to be well adjusted to a profoundly sick society and when I read that I was like whoa because I was could never get adjusted so am I more healthy, you know, and then you look at indigenous cultures and some cultures like shaman are actually would be people with like mental illness or something in our culture, they're tapped into something else like they can't function linearly. <laughs> like if you put them in here, they're just going to be crazy people. And there's no documentary about that, like how um, about shamanism. Anyway, so basically, uh, I feel like I've been on this journey for a long time, but I just didn't yeah, realize that uh, how I could fit and I guess realizing that actually a lot of people are like this too but they just like force themselves into like fitting in and 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 you know the nine to five and the grind and but people are unhappy you know and so yeah this goes back to community and and I feel like unearthing people's stories in the garden pun intended because we we work through food growing and in Vancouver too we have a, a food forest project that we want to unearth people's stories there and, and traumas and, and different you know and, and uh, have culturally appropriate food growing and, and how can people really um, get to know each other in that way and not through uh, you know sort of systems like the systems ways of uh, forcing us to kind of um, yeah so I guess I'm like still in the center of also, yeah, in the middle of that learning curve, because I'm learning so much every day. Like, it's, it's amazing to think that, and, and that's why I love uh, this type of interview too, because we're, we're our panel discussion, I don't know what you want to call it, but we're still exploring, like I'm in the total exploration phase and that it's okay to be vulnerable, like, and, and express to people that we don't have it all figured out. Nobody does. That's also like a, makeup thing, pretend thing, scientists barely have it figured out even, you know, so to, to show that you're vulnerable and still learning all the time is really important to acknowledge that none of us really know anything. Like that's the first thing we should probably acknowledge. <laughs> yeah, and another thing to acknowledge is that there are people who have figured it out and we killed them. True. Um, like, you know, when you talked about this, this idea of people with mental illness should be revered as shamans and that's their role in society that brings a whole new meaning to human-centered design for me and it really speaks to how are we designing for the humans that we want to design for rather than the humans that fit in the system in a sense and I think that's probably what my problem is with what we now call human-centered design, particularly in the urban space, because there's so, the hierarchy is all wrong, you know, of how we're, we're trying to consider um, what is most people <laughs> on top of like, what is, who are the marginalized? Because we never ask that question. All three of us here in this room have been living in and, and broadly traveling in richer nations as well as former colonial countries. And I think the colonial powers or the previous colonial powers are often called developed nations. Um, there's a sense of progress, obviously, that's embedded there and the sense of 
what is an advanced culture versus what is not an advanced culture. And so these nations often experience greater systemic privilege, of course, because they designed the systems uh, to be in their favor. And there's a sense of entitlement as well, of course, within these cultures. And this is one way in which glo global hegemony persists in our minds and in our bodies. I am a product, right, of global hegemony. And what hegemony obviously refers to is a cultural domination that permeates our institutional systems, such as the UN, the World Bank, World Trade Organization, etc. So these are the systems we talk about when we're referring to the system, right? And how it shows up is extractive trade policies and globalized capitalism, etc. So these are like, I'm just describing other ways that we are separated and how these things came about. And the parts of the human world which experience these things are, I call the global north, and it's a metaphorical term, of course, the global north also exists in the global south and vice versa. And you're both born in Canada, have a good amount of life and work experience in the global north as well as the global south. So the question I'd like to kind of frame is around the global north itself. Um, and MP, you've talked about this as well. What do what do communities have to do with it, right? So how how do you um, personally cultivate these interdependencies that we often operate with anyway by default in the global south? Um, how do you cultivate that? So that goes back to the question, I guess, that I asked before, which is, can you build community amongst people who don't know that, <laughs> that we're building community here? And also, how do you relate that to the land that you're currently on? So I think this question also points to the fact that both of you have exposure to and are learning from indigenous people who work on the lands that you're on. And I think a lot of these global systems, they seem to be far away, but they're really not. They're really right next to you. Um, and they're right next to them, right? These, these peoples who are trying to, to heal places. So I guess the question is, how do you, how do you feel it is to be working in that space? And also what are the, I almost wanna say, what are the buttons we need to press in order to get other people to see that there is joy in this work as well? Like other people who have moved through A to B, let's say similarly to yourself where you are. So this is the big question. <sighs> There's so much coming up for me as you ask this, Sam. I'll be really honest and say one of the first things that comes up is I feel really lonely. Like I feel really alone in, um, in this work. And, and then chasing that is like, but actually it's really great and I'm not alone. So let me just talk myself out of the rafters. I feel the loneliness because a little bit like you described MP where you were like, even though you were good in school and you know, you could make it work, but it didn't feel quite right. I feel like that's a fractal of like me in my wider culture. It's like, I'm speaking English with a Canadian accent. I have friends whom I truly love and I have a wonderful family and I'm, you know, all kinds of things that you can say like boxes checked, but I have felt since I can remember like a fish out of water. And I actually, I'm going to say literally, and I don't say it lightly because I'm Pisces. I feel like I'm literally, you know, no way. Um, I feel like, and he's pointing at herself if you're just listening to this. Um, I feel like I have been experiencing a reality that's different from the reality of my peers and then trying to explain my reality and then being told I'm crazy. And so I say that kind of gently, but I think my friends who've known me for a long time outside of my professional space would agree that I'm weird. <laughs> so, and a little bit like I could say I'm an artist, except I have, I've been making art and the sort of textiles you see behind, like I've been making kind of unusual stuff for a while, but I'm not an artist. That's not my career, you would say. So the loneliness comes from doing what I can to tell what I think is the truth to friends and family and peers and colleagues and clients who, for whatever reason, aren't in a good position to hear that truth. 
And then finding that I'm doubting myself, like, well, maybe I'm wrong or everybody has a truth and everybody's a special snowflake and whatever. But then realizing like, no, no, there really are things that I think I need to share. And I have a lot of, like, I've had actually very real dreams. Like I'm asleep dreaming um, of like, like deep empathy with people who experienced um, as the Holocaust was unfolding, like seeing the smoke from the crematorium and knowing that it was human flesh and like trying to say what they knew and not being believed or not knowing how to say it. And, and I'm, these are just like dreams and assertions. I'm obviously not those people and that didn't really happen to me. But I sometimes have that very visceral feeling about everything from like the industrial meat industry to how we are on stolen land and how our financial system is designed to extract and harm. So that's the loneliness. But yet um, what I do, I'm kind of relentless. Like I don't want to die. I'm not suicidal. I'm actually super curious. I'm very highly self-motivated, probably to the point of <laughs> being a bit of a lunatic. And so that takes me down channels. I like follow my nose. Like, well, what are those people doing? And how did they do it? And how come it's working? And that's what's led me to be friends with people here and um, or just outside of Montreal and Ganesatage and Ganawage, people who have persevered and survived and in, in by various measures thrived and are doing things that are working really well. And in Brazil, likewise, I've followed my nose. I've been there for work. So I've been, you know, flown there by industry to do projects, if you will. But while there, I've sort of made friends in unusual places and followed my nose to different kinds of businesses and initiatives and farms and people and practices where I see what I interpret to be truly regenerative things happening. And so what gives me hope is partly that that's happening, but then I can act as a kind of human mycelium to spread those rumors, to talk about it, to write about it on my blog, to bring it into a client conversation as a kind of, did you know, or here's an example or so yeah, that's, um, it's not exactly community building. I'd say it's kind of starfishing, like I'm like reaching out in multiple directions, grabbing and bringing in nutrients to stay uh, excited and positive and well, and then spreading things back out. And then also just holding the despair a little bit and saying like, sometimes it's pretty grim <laughs> but but then I get to talk to you guys and I live in this beautiful place and it's actually also pretty awesome that's good Lorraine yeah pretty much um I realize that um the way that I do fit into this grind culture is that I'm really proactive and action oriented and I, I'm always wondering what can we all do like right now to 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 bridge those gaps or do something. And, and really fundamentally, the, the reason why everything is chaos in this world is that people can't get along like, at all. <laughs> so how can we get along basically? I'm like conducting a social experiment just in my neighborhood because this is where I am and this is where I can perform these actions. Like it's like people talk a lot, you know, and it's like what we're doing now. And there's all these, you know, think tanks and, and just people dreaming and thinking and visioning and what about what can you really do right now like talk to your neighbor do you know like in a city a big city like Vancouver or whatever like have you do you know your neighbor's names like this is a crazy thing that is so micro and something that really has deep like impacts and ripple effects in everybody's lives and it's it's just a small thing that people could do so and in Vancouver here where I live, there's a huge indigenous population that are not all from here. And how do, can we become friends? How can we be, build trusting relationships and coming from like a white settler? It's not always welcome. I did it, I went about it the wrong way. Maybe at the beginnings, I'm really eager, enthusiastic and I travel and I'm like, just wanna be everybody's friend, but knowing, seeing like people's boundaries, but and also in cities, creating spaces where those interactions can happen, which I, with the traffic circle garden, I have a seed library in there that actually has become a little hub of like people meeting in a distance way because it's the pandemic. I've met a bunch of my indigenous neighbors there too. And just, just first of all, saying hello to people and, and just like seeing them over and over again and 
like being outside, like I'm always shocked at how little people are outside. And of course it's, it's cold and it's really rainy here, but there's people just don't spend lots of time outside like they do in, in, in tropical countries where I've lived. And that's another factor, how to be outside a lot because that's where you're gonna meet the people. <laughs> and um, there's just so many small things that you can do that really you don't realize would have such impact. And also getting out of that mindset, which is another colonized mindset of like everything that you do or, you know, I've had this indoctrinated idea of like, having to do something that ha will have impact and will really make a change or why would I make an effort to do something that won't, you know, create some kind of change or that's, that's like a really weird thing, like about just, you know, making a new friend or spend, you know, I would think like it's wasting time if I spend time with a neighbor outside, like just talking and it's just like wasting my time. I got to be doing this other productive stuff. And like, all those things like with the beginning of the pandemic actually changed because uh, life slowed down. People weren't going, I wasn't, you know, actually I started our organization Refarmers at right at the beginning of the pandemic. And I had this, uh, this, um, you know, the desire to succeed or the pressure that I had this colonized pressure to succeed was like lifted. And I was like, wow, I can use this as an excuse to like, <laughs> not, you know, have all the, the things that I had planned for Refarmers were kind of like, and I was like, this is amazing. Cool. Now I can just like chill out. And that's when I started the seed library and I can just like do things because I like, and those were the things that had these great impacts and I didn't plan them. I did them out of love and just intention and not, didn't care about it having this great impact. And they did. And our projects in Uganda, I, I did a whole talk about, you know, this kind of um, idea. So it's really encouraging and being able to lift yourself out. And the more you surround yourself with different cultures and our indigenous nations here and seeing that, yeah, it's not all linear and it's not all time oriented and that really is refreshing and we need it. And the fact that we don't use this indigenous lens for everything we do, like unlike Lorraine, I grew up never not knowing an indigenous person ever until I was like 25 and not, not not learning anything in school. And I'm just like, what that is. So after that, I kind of like made up for it by like, you know, you know, now in my work, I'm like, how could we not use an indigenous lens to, to look at everything because we're on stolen land, you know, and I'm doing work in a public park. And I just, that injustice that, you know, we have to ask park board and city council to do a project in a park. I'm just like, and anyway, it's just, but using that lens to, for all my work and also I'm still new at it and I am still cultivating new relationships with my indigenous friends and, um, and not everybody, you know, a lot of people have been taken, stolen from their own cultures and they're, you know, re uh, rooting themselves in their cultures too. And so it's, it's kind of a journey for all of us and being accepting that, you know, and to get things, like, you're going to get things wrong too. And sometimes addressing other cultures and being forgiving. And that's one thing too, like forgiving each other for being ignorant. And like, it's just really important to not have that hatred that we have for people just not getting it. Like I, I fight that. I recalibrate on a minutely basis. I have to, and it's important to be recalibrating all the time and so that you can try to get along <laughs> so it's two things but they're connected so first of all um mp when you introduced yourself and you said where you were you referenced the the territorial um community the nation's land that you're on and and i have a lot of respect for that and your sort of ability to rattle it off the tip of your tongue and in juxtaposition to that i don't do that because, although I respect that you do it, um, because I feel like there's this habit that's happening in Canada to begin meetings acknowledging with a land acknowledgement. And what I've started to feel, now I haven't been at an in-person in meeting in Montreal for a while, but when I first moved here about two years ago and I was attending meetings, having lived in New York, moved here, and I, the meeting would go like this. I'd like to begin by saying we're on and they would you know, rattle off a bunch of Mohawk terms to describe where we are in this part of the world. And, you know, blah, 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 acknowledging that essentially this is unseated stolen land. Okay, so our first agenda point today is, and then they would just like go into the meeting. And so it's like, 
wait, can we just go back to the land acknowledgement? Because we aren't doing anything other than saying that the land was stolen. And so I kind of sit in a paradox of like, so, but it is, and so I should acknowledge it, but saying where I am and I, I haven't landed. So I totally respect how you do that. And then I'm confused about my own doing that. And then to your impact um, point, I've recently been having some uncomfortable, let's say conversations. In my mind, they're arguments, but the other party isn't even arguing, but the concept of scale. And there's this like trend in regeneration of these tech folks, right? And with respect, I'm gonna say they're all male. And then a lot of them are like American California, California, or in this case, there's a particular Nordic streak where they're like, we just need to get the right technology in place and scale it. And I've come to cringe at the word scale and even like even a really great solution, I'm starting to argue like, yeah, we shouldn't scale it. And what, what I'm looking for, and you, you mentioned it MP and it just struck so deeply. I feel like what we're trying to do is increase love. And so if, if I can increase love between me and my neighbors, me and my one neighbor. And if that has the impact of like making us have more love in our life, whatever that means, because the seeds grew because the garbage got taken out. Like, I, I think that is success. And then more of that is more success. And then to be like, well, how, how would you scale that? I'm like, I don't know. But if we don't even know what love is, then we're measuring things that shouldn't be measured. And yeah, so anyway, I just wanted to really underscore your, it's not about having an impact streak. And that has been so pounded into us that as a result, we're not having an impact. <laughs> like we're having the wrong impact. So yeah. I was gonna say, yeah. And the people who you meet, you know, on the street and, and can be the CEO of like, you know, some large company that, that just your interaction with that person could have way deeper ripple effects than you might imagine. And even if people live in rural areas, like you never know who you're meeting and who, and, and all of the industrialized world is made up of people. Like these things don't run by themselves. Like they're all, it's about people. All that it just looks like, you know, the facade is like, you know, corporations and, but who's there? Like these are people that exist in our day-to-day -day lives and, yeah, how do we, I mean, yeah, it's, it's so complex and it's not, I mean, I don't know if anything's gonna really change in our lifetime, but that's not the point either. Like we, yeah. And the scaling thing, I, I also, I use scale down to describe what we're doing because people understand the word scale, but even <laughs> that, but so I, I'm like, scale it down. Like never even, I don't even think regeneration and scaling up uh, go together at all. Because even when you look at indigenous cultures and um, like on the Pacific Nor Northwestern, um, they were, uh, indigenous folks were gardeners essentially because they, but it looked kind of like farming in a way because they took up large um, pieces of land, but they were all like little micro gardens. And this is what we have to kind of cultivate, like little, you know, like that's replicating it technically would be like scaling, but it's like do little micro things and then replicate that all over the place. Because the more you expand and the more people are involved, the more disconnected, you know, we are. So it, you just have like small groups of folks. It's hard to explain, <laughs> but you know, kind of what I mean. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I think speaking to the power of local community, right? And both in terms of the human aspect and in terms of the environmental aspect, I think is something that we retain here in the global south. But again, there's this like overhanging the system, preventing a lot of communities from being able to really do the natural thing that they want to do, simply because I need money to survive, and I need to earn money. That's sort of I guess the major way that that particularly happens, that people then feel forced to go and make choices that uproot them or separate them, etc. I like this uh, metaphor that Lorraine was using about the starfish and I took it to a different place, which is that we are kind of like the starfish where we are blind and we have little feet 
and we are trying to climb this like gigantic coral <laughs> and we don't really know what it looks like or how big it is or you know what dangers might be around that might stop us from being able to go this way or that way or, or anything like that and also it's going to take a long time because we have little feet <laughs> I love it. Can I give the starfish another dimension too? So yeah. I, um, and looping back to the shaman comment as well, I'm very blessed that one of the people who guides me in my life, she's a sort of reformed Freudian analyst become shaman based in Brazil. And uh, you could also just say she's my therapist, but she's so much more than that. And one day she was guiding me through a meditation and it's a long story, but the at the end, I realized that the creature that had been guiding me was a starfish. And it was super random. I don't know if I've ever actually met a starfish, but the starfish just came up. And she said, oh, well, that makes a lot of sense because this meditation was about connecting with all of the elements. And I was like, oh, I thought there were four elements, you know, air, water, earth, and fire. And she said, oh, well, in, in this tradition, we would have a fifth, which is spirituality or the essence or the sort of one that wraps around. And so the starfish, the meditation was really based on recognizing that we all have everything we need. And so we, we are of those elements. We have all five of those elements. So little feet, don't have a clue where we're going. Things are going to take time, but we have everything that we need. Yeah. Final thoughts, MP. Yeah. We just have to be patient basically and not, you know, oh, I know my friend Lori Snyder, who's a Métis herbalist and works with plant medicine. She always, I don't know why this reminded me of it, but she says you carry your medicine with you because your breath has really the power to heal and to and that recalibration I was talking about. And it's amazing what this thing that we do all the time, not consciously, and that's why so many Eastern religions and, and other uh, you know, cultures focus on breath that is like the life essence. And she says, you carry your medicine with you. And, you know, whenever we need to, and that really helps with slowing down and, and pausing. And especially in situations where you're talking with some, somebody who's not on the same wavelength or, you know, it's really important to tap into that medicine and really cultivate those relationships. I guess that's my last thought. Cheers. Thank you both for this amazing conversation. I feel really lucky to be part of it, but also the gaps that we bridge, right? And that's the work. That's the work. That's the work. That's the work. Thank you so much for joining us in that recent exploration. We hope you gained some value and we'd love to learn from you what you took away, what maybe challenged you, what new ideas that you have. Please do share this on your social media platforms if you feel moved. And you can find out more about HexoChange at hexochangenow.com where you can subscribe for the weekly or bi-weekly updates where I'll update you with regard to in-person events, blogs, blogs, service offerings, and other thoughts and ideas that come to mind. Hope to see you around.